they do come. Uh, they have an off year and an on year. One year there's maybe 40 apples, and the next year there's several hundred apples. And uh, this year was a good production year, and we got to make applesauce and all sorts of apple things. Uh, the apples are very tasty. I'm not just trying to brag on these apples here. I've got a point to this. Uh, but uh, many of the apple trees, or many of the apples on this tree had uh, either at least one wormhole. Um, some were just fine, but some had some sort of imperfection, and some little ones fell off prematurely. And when I cracked them open on the inside, they were so worm damaged that I wouldn't think about eating them. Uh, I think there's a parallel to this in marriage, as we're going to see in our text today. God created marriage as a good and beautiful gift, and it is so often marred by sin. We will see how the worm of sin destroys many marriages, and we will see God's original good intention for marriage. God's plans for marriage are good, as we're going to see in our text this morning. Let's read together in Mark chapter 10. We're reading verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh." What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray together. Father, we live in a day of so much confusion, right down to what it is to be a man or a woman. Uh, much less this gift of marriage that you have given, uh, and and so many other things our society is confused on. Thank you, Father, for speaking clearly uh, on your good design. We pray that you would help us to be a people who are stable, who stand in your word and trust in you, no matter what the society around us says. Pray that you would give us joy, Lord, as we seek your face, and seek to understand your word and your will for us. In Jesus' name, amen. In light of this passage, I think one of the key things we should get is that God created marriage, and he hates its destruction. And as Christ's disciples, we've got to accept that. In verses 1 to 9, we're going to see God's intention in marriage. And in verses 10 to 12, we're going to consider divorce and remarriage as Jesus addresses them. As our passage starts here, uh, we have an important geography stamp in verse 1. Mark gives us Jesus' GPS pinpoints, so to speak. Uh, It's like when you've got the Find a Friend app and you can spy on somebody and see where they're at. 
our family has the Find a Friend app. It's wonderful. My wife always knows where I'm at, and, uh, which, which is fine. Uh, but as Mark is telling us where Jesus is at, uh, it's not just to satisfy our curiosity about his whereabouts. Uh, Mark is telling us about Jesus' progress in his ministry from Galilee to Judea and ultimately to Jerusalem. Here, in chapter 10, we see that Jesus leaves Galilee. Thus far, he has been ministering heavily in the northern part of Israel, in Galilee. And now he leaves there, and he's not going back. We won't see him in Galilee again in in Mark's gospel. His ministry there is done, and he starts ministering in Judea. Uh, And as Mark tells us, that as was Jesus' custom, when he gets there, he starts teaching. In his earthly ministry, Jesus taught constantly, and that was his custom. He also preached. He casted out demons. He healed people. Um, But from this point on in Mark's gospel, we're going to see very few miracles. We've seen all sorts of miracles throughout Mark's gospel, but very few of them will follow now. Uh, He's going to heal blind Bartimaeus. He's going to curse a fig tree. But outside of that, there's not very many miracles that we'll see here. And as the story progresses, the contractions of conflict are begin to ramp up. The time is drawing near for the completion of Jesus' ministry. Uh, but that time's not yet. Even though that's the case, though, and today we see some of that conflict rearing its head. The Pharisees come to Jesus in Judea. Verse 2 tells us, and they come to test him. One commentator noted that the word here for test could also be tempt. It's the same word. It's used four times in the Gospel of Mark. Three of those times are by the Pharisees as they come to test Jesus. The first time that it's used is by Satan uh, as Satan comes to test Jesus in the wilderness. And so, we should already be knowing that whatever's coming out of their hearts and their, their words here is not for Jesus' good. Uh, it's to challenge him. And we've seen that already throughout the Gospel of Mark, and we see it here again. They come to test Jesus. Well, that's no surprise to us at this point. They want to ask him a really hard question, and they hope that he answers it poorly uh, so that they can have something against him and, and likely to decrease his popularity in the eyes of the public. Well, they go for a topic of high interest and great conflict, both then and and today. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Verse 3, Jesus gives them a chance to answer their own question. He says, well, what did Moses command you? You hear the Pharisees reference Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. They say, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And we're going to look at that text in a minute here. Uh, Now, Jesus could have just said, well, there you have your answer, and and let the controversy pass on to somebody else. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't avoid hard questions. Instead, he gives his answer in light of theirs, and he rebukes them in the process. Jesus speaks with clarity and courage. Uh, Let's look at what he says again here in verse 5. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, He wrote you this commandment. So why was this commandment given? Because they had hard hearts. And notice he actually groups the Pharisees in along with with the original audience there. As we consider what Jesus is doing as he responds to them 
here in this way, I think it would be helpful for us to actually look at that passage. So this is in Deuteronomy, fifth chapter of the Bible, fifth book of the Bible, excuse me, and it's the 24th chapter of Deuteronomy. You can turn there if you'd like. You can listen as well. I just want to read this passage because this is what the debate is going on about. This is what they're referencing. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of the house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, that's the second husband, if he dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. That's the passage they've referred to here. This law, in the law of Moses, relates to divorce. Uh, it requires that if a man is going to put his wife away, if he's going to divorce his wife, he's got to put a certificate in her hand. He, he's got to make it formal. He's got to actually go through the work of making this even really a public reality. Uh, and if she was to be remarried, this law also forbids him from ever going back and marrying her again. Now this law, no doubt, protected women because it both made divorce harder and it made the consequences higher. You know, a man couldn't just decide one day that he was done and it was over right then and there. It's interesting, from what I understand within Islam, if a Muslim man wants to divorce his wife, all he has to say is, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and then, then it's over. It's enacted. Uh, the Bible doesn't allow for that. Uh, that. That's too cheap and easy for the guy. Uh, here in this passage in Deuteronomy 24, see that there's a document must be given, uh, and it's, it's a reality that he might enter into that he might never be able to reverse. Jesus gives us a unique... So that's a little bit about Deuteronomy 24 there. A lot more can be said about that. Uh, that's all I'm going to say for right now. Jesus gives us a unique lens, though, on the interpretation of this commandment. Jesus knew the heart behind this passage in a way that the Pharisees did not. Now, you will recall from Mark's Gospel earlier that one of the things that was true about Jesus and his ministry is that he taught with authority. People remark that the scribes, they didn't teach with authority. They followed the traditions. But Jesus, when he taught, he taught with authority. And of course he did. Uh, John's Gospel calls him the Word. Uh, he is the Word. He has always the right understanding of the Scriptures. Jesus says here that this law in Deuteronomy 24 was commanded because of the hardness of the hearts of the people who received it. This law was a concession to the fact of their sinful hearts. So as we think about the laws in the Old Testament, it would seem, in light of what Jesus says here, there are some laws that forbid sin outright. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. It's just a blanket denial and forbidding of those sins. Other laws in the Old Testament also seem to restrain sin. They mitigate sin by regulation. 
I would think, for instance, uh, another regulation that would fall on that is the fact that there's slavery regulated in the Old Testament. Since we're getting into controversial matters, why don't we just keep going here? Uh, slavery is addressed in the Old Testament. A lot of times people will say, well, the Bible endorses slavery because there you see laws in the Old Testament that talk about slavery. So God must think slavery is good. I think there's a parallel here. Uh, when it comes to the institution of slavery, it was so widespread throughout the culture that what God does, I believe, in the Old Testament is that he regulates it. And through that, he mitigates it. Uh, I think it was God's original intention, I'll just go a little farther here, that man would take dominion over creation. We see that in Genesis 1. It was never God's intention that man would take dominion over other men and women. It wasn't God's original intention. Uh, but here, in light of the sinful context that God is speaking to, he regulates it. So that, that's how I understand that. And I think that's what God is doing here in Deuteronomy 24. The reality of divorce, it's easy to think about the good old days and nothing bad ever happened then. It might, we might get that kind of an idea about the day that the scriptures were written to and it just is certainly not true. Divorce was widespread in the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, certainly is today. Uh, this command is given in Deuteronomy 24 under the inspiration of God in order to mitigate sin. Um, so that's a, a lot to take in. Uh, there's uh, a lot going on in this passage. Uh, but the thing that we want to see here is that Jesus points to that reality. It's because of their hardness of heart that this command has been given. But the Pharisees have approached this law very differently. As they've come to it and they've read it, uh, they have come to the text assuming, as they read that text, that they have the right to divorce. And Jesus shows them that they have missed the point entirely. Jesus continues his response by going farther back in the writings of Moses to God's intention in cre creation. Uh, and back, we're back in Mark chapter 10 here. Uh, I want to read verses 6 through 8 again. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus cites both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 here when he tells us about God's intention for marriage. What we find in this passage is that God is the one who made mankind as male and female. A lot of talk today about people talking about the old gender binary, as some call it, uh, that, well, the old idea that there's man and woman. Well, that was actually God's idea, and he's delighted to make mankind as male and female. And marriage was also God's idea. Marriage is a gift from God. When a man and a woman come together in marriage, then that new union becomes the new central relationship in their lives. A man's allegiance from, to his parents, uh, as that has been the priority, that now shifts to his wife and the wife to her husband. The two become one flesh in their marital union. I don't know who said this first, but it's certainly true. The mathematics of marriage is that one plus one equals one. It's the idea. One plus one equals one. The two who have been separate become one in marriage. God's intention for a couple is to continue to grow together in their marriage as time goes on. This includes both physical and emotional intimacy. It includes the, the joining together of people's lives and pursuits. 
Now, I don't think that this means that couples have to have identical hobbies or that they have to dress alike or finish each other's sentences or sandwiches. Uh, but there should be a growing sense of oneness and sweetness in a marriage. In the things that really matter, a couple should be growing together, not apart. As time goes on, in the things that really matter, a couple should be growing together and not apart. That is God's good intention for the gift of marriage that he has given to humanity. Now, not everyone is called to be married. Jesus was single, and so was the Apostle Paul, and this was to God's glory. Some people do not desire to be married, and that's not a defect. There is a high calling to God's glory and singleness as well. For some, that will be for a season, and others, that will be for life. The important thing is for us that whether we're married or not, that we would live our lives wholly to God and his glory. And for those for whom God does call to marriage, he sees that we can see here that he calls them there for life. Jesus says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God's desire for marriage is that it would last for the long haul. Jesus tells the Pharisees that Moses permitted divorce on account of the hardness of their hearts. When it comes to Deuteronomy 24, what God had allowed as a mitigating concession, the Pharisees were seeking to use as a divine affirmation. I know I used fancy words there, but what I'm trying to say is that God had given this law in order to regulate and to mitigate the effects of sin. The Pharisees go there and they see, oh, well, I guess God's perfectly fine with it. Many of the Pharisees were reading the heart of Deuteronomy 24 wrongly. They saw in it a loophole to justify their desires for divorce for any reason. As Jesus teaches on God's intention for marriage, he's also rebuking their hard hearts. The Pharisees have come once again to lay a trap for Jesus, uh, and they have failed to catch him. Along the way, we have seen God's purpose for marriage. And we're not going to leave that topic now as we move on to consider 10, and 12, 10 11, and 12. But we're going to focus more specifically on what Jesus tells his disciples about divorce and remarriage now in verses 10 to 12. Uh, the disciples, after hearing this, they, they want to know more. When they get in a house, they ask Jesus about this matter. They ask him farther. Now, Mark's record of this conversation is briefer than Matthew's. Uh, but Jesus responds to them. Uh, they asked him about this matter. Verse 11, he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. That's, uh, of course, adultery against his wife, the first woman he's married. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus is pretty straightforward and to the point here. To divorce your spouse and marry another is an act of adultery. There are not a lot of sayings of Jesus that ruffle the feathers of our culture more than this. Now, we live in an age where divorce is increasingly seen as a normal thing. When Jeff Bezos of Amazon and the Washington Post, when he and his wife got divorced, uh, they tried their best to make it look like it was a friendly separation. That they were happily going their own way. I can't, can't imagine that it was too happy when Dozens of millions of dollars were at stake in the settlement of it all. Uh, people have even tried to talk about people growing 
uh, outgrowing each other uh, as a way of thinking positively about divorce. But none of that can really square with what Jesus says here. Divorce is not just as good as marriage, no matter what our society says. And I just don't believe in the fable of a happy divorce. There is always pain and loss in divorce. Nobody goes into marriage with a plan for it to end in divorce, at least not anybody with an ounce of sanity. Further, no divorce is free of sin, even if that sin is mainly on the part of the one side, like in the case of adultery. What Jesus says here, I have to imagine, absolutely rocked the world of the Pharisees and the disciples. In the parallel to this passage in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 19, once they hear this, the disciples say, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Uh, Jesus' teaching floored the disciples. They, they couldn't believe it. Jewish society of this day allowed divorce. Uh, it was just a question from Deuteronomy 24, uh, in what cases was it allowed? The school of Rabbi Shammai said that it was only justified in the case of adultery, from Deuteronomy 24, where it said, some indecency. Uh, the school of Rabbi Hillel said that it could be for any reason. Uh, Rabbi Hillel had, you could say, a very liberal view of, of divorce and remarriage. His understanding was, if a man... Uh, didn't like his wife anymore, he could divorce her. If he thought that there was another woman prettier than his wife, he could divorce her and remarry, and God was fine with that. Uh, if a man's wife cooked a dish in a way that he didn't like it, that was cause enough for a divorce. This is the context that Jesus is speaking into. And I'm not making those examples up. These are actually still in record uh, from the, the pen of Rabbi Hillel in the school that followed him. It would appear in our text today that Jesus gives no exceptions to this. Uh, and those who argue that there are never any grounds for divorce find a support in this text. And I respect that position for its high view of marriage. I do think, however, that simply because Mark doesn't record any exceptions here does not mean that there are no exceptions to the rule. I believe that in Scripture, as we look at all of what God has revealed, there are two specific cases in which divorce is permitted in Scripture, though it's never the ideal. And the parallel in Matthew 19, I've referred to it already. In verse 9, Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. I understand this to be an exception related to adultery. That does not mean that a couple must get divorced where adultery has happened. Uh, there certainly can be forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. That's the ideal. But I believe that Jesus makes clear in Matthew 19.9 that a man and a woman is, a man or a woman is free to leave a relationship where their spouse has forsaken their marital vows of fidelity. So that should never be done automatically or lightly. Hopefully, for anybody in that situation, they're walking with their pastor and trusted counselors. I think a second exception in Scripture that we find is in 1 Corinthians 7. This is a much debated passage, uh, and I can't give a thorough argument of it here this morning. Uh, but in it, Paul addresses a situation, among a lot of things he addresses related to marriage there, he addresses a situation in which a believing spouse has been abandoned by an unbelieving spouse. Probably the situation there is that there were two pagans who were married, and one of them converts to Christ. 
somewhere along the marriage, and the other person doesn't. Uh, in that case, it would seem here, that the unbeliever is so annoyed and angered by the conversion and the new life of their spouse uh, that he tells his wife that it's either Jesus or me. You pick. Or perhaps an unbelieving wife decides, well, it's time to move on from her believing husband. So that seems to be the context that Paul's addressing there. A believer has been abandoned by an unbelieving spouse. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.15, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. I understand that text to represent a second exception to what is otherwise a clear command in Scripture against divorce. In those cases where a divorce is allowed, uh, in, in these two exceptions I've, I've discussed, I think that where divorce is allowed, I would understand a new marriage to be justified. Now, certainly there are plausible arguments against my understanding, and I respect anyone who takes the Bible and marriage seriously, even if they disagree with me on this. One more piece of this I'd want to discuss as well. In Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 3, Paul is comparing marriage and the Christian's relationship to the law. And there he discusses what is an accepted fact that if a spouse dies, then the widow or the widower is free to be married again. It's another clear, that's not really an exception. Uh, that's that's uh, simply a, a teaching there. It's not an exception to what Jesus is saying here. Well, the Pharisees thought that this was a topic that they could trip Jesus up on. Uh, and let's be honest, this is a hard subject. It's a hard matter. Jesus speaks with clarity, and we want to take him at his word and, and everything that he says. In light of this passage now, what are some takeaways for us? I know I've been wrestling through some very hard subjects, getting into some of the nitty-gritty arguments, and far more could have been said. Uh, but what, what's some takeaway of application for us in light of what's said here? I think first, we want to let God's standard be our standard. Now, you don't need to take my understanding on this passage as the final say. You must go to Scripture and wrestle with what God says. At the end of the day, you are not accountable for every point that I say. You are accountable to God and everything he says. Make sure that you let the Bible set your conscience. It is far too easy to let our culture set our conscience, but we want to let God be the one who determines our conscience. Make sure that you have grappled with God and his word on this matter. Second, God cares for your marriage. For you who are married, God cares for your marriage, so fight for it. Do you care for your marriage like God cares for it? I've been married for almost nine years now, uh, and which is really a, a small time, and it's gone so quick. Uh, it is easy, though, for us to hit the cruise control on our marriage. You know, it's like the crock pot. You know, you set it and forget it. You do your duties, and you just keep trucking along. That's, that's, that's how you do. Uh, worse yet, it is way too easy to let sin slip in our marriage relationship. Selfishness and pride can absolutely destroy your marriage. Sin is the worm that ruins so, so many marriages. Sin can eat its way down to the very core of your marriage 
until you feel like there is nothing good left in it at all? Are you still seeking to stamp out sin in your life for the good of your marriage? Heed the words of the beloved in the Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 15. It says, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. Too many marriages have lost their sweetness for lack of care and for the lack of a desire to fight against sin that hurts the other person. Third point of application, have hope that divorce does not have to be the answer to deep marital strife. Have hope that divorce does not have to be the answer to deep marital strife. If it is God's desire that every marriage should make it, and by the way, he desires a lot more than just that we make it, uh, if that's God's desire for every marriage, then he will supply what you need if you look to him. He can supply what your friends need in their struggling marriages. If you're seeking to help others, he can supply you with wisdom to be faithful and to encourage them. If both partners are willing to forgive and work together in humility, then any marriage can be saved. And and if even just one spouse begins to work on a marriage to honor God, great progress can be made. I have heard incredible stories. This last year I met a couple recently who, who overcame adultery that had taken place in their marriage, and now they're seeking God together and their marriage is strong. God can supply everything that is needed, not only to make your marriage work, but to make your marriage so sweet that you are very glad to be in it. But growth and healing takes time, it takes hard work, it takes humility and selflessness. Often it takes repentance, good old-fashioned repentance. And it is never a painless process, but it is worth it. Now the sad truth is, not, is that not every marriage will make it. I don't have to tell you that. The statistics are there to demonstrate it. And we all know people affected by divorce. The fact that Jesus addresses the matter demonstrates that it's prevalent enough to address. There are times that the determined sin of even one member in a marriage will mean that that marriage will not survive. For example, if one partner is determined to leave, there is only so much that can be done. In those cases, we grieve, we call to repentance where it's needed, we comfort those who have to live with the consequences of other people's sins. Fourth, in light of this, we should pray for the marriages of this church and in our families and of our friends. Especially, we should pray for the marriages. Set your heart to pray for the marriages of this church. Do not take for granted that any marriage in this congregation is immune from challenge and strife. Now, I'm not aware of any marriages on the, rock, uh, on the rocks here, but that doesn't mean that we're all as healthy as we could be. Satan is so determined to trash the marriages of God's people. If marriage is to picture Christ and his bride, the church, as Ephesians 5 tells us, then we can be sure that Satan wants to deface any picture of the gospel that he can. Pray for the marriages of this church. Pray that couples would grow in humility and selflessness, that couples would grow in their desire to please God in their marriages, and pray that couples would grow together in unity and love. You know, God created 
marriage. And he didn't create marriage to be operated without him. Certainly there are cases where there are unbelievers who have relatively healthy marriages. But we've got to understand that God is the author of marriage, and he wrote himself into the program, so to speak. <laughs> he didn't make us to be together without his help. Uh, if you are married, then you will need Christ to love your spouse well. And our final application and encouragement here is to look to Christ, who never fails his bride. Whether or not you are married on earth, if you are in Christ, then you are wed to Christ. We are all together the bride of Christ. God never fails us. We can take heart in that. That doesn't mean that our life is going to always look exactly the way we might like it at any given moment. But God never fails us. His promises are true. He will not fail in his commitments to us. He does not neglect us. He is never unfaithful to us. And that's where our confidence lies as Christians. Our hope and our confidence is in the faithfulness of God to do everything that he's promised through his son Jesus. So we close now and look back over the text. We must remember that marriage is God's idea. It is his gift. He loves it and he hates its destruction. As the disciples of Christ, let's strive to think about marriage the way that God does and live in light of that. Let's pray. Father, your word is sharp. And it cuts into matters and discussions that sometimes we might rather left unaddressed. But you know us and you know what is good for us. And so we pray that you would help us to accept your word, that you would help us to delight in your word and everything that came from your mouth to us, Lord. Pray that you would help us to live today before your face. And I do pray that you would be at work in the marriages of this church, Lord. Pray that you would help husbands to lay down their lives for their brides, to sacrifice uh, their own desires so many times, again and again, for their wife. Pray for wives in this church, Lord. I pray that you would help them to submit to their husbands as to you. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, along in the fight of faith. Strengthen us, Lord, that we would all submit to you and look to you and wait on you. And Lord, I pray that you would work by your Holy Spirit in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.